feels a little bit like another hard right turn to turn to preaching. Um, but as we've seen this morning, our God is in the business of restoring and broken things, and he's going to continue to do that through the word. So this morning, we are continuing to talk about restoration as we work through the book of Matthew. God is restoring us, and in doing so, he brings restoration to the world around us. Last week, we heard a meaty, delicious meal from Nancy about restored childlike faith. If you haven't listened to that one yet, check it out. And this morning, we are talking about a restored view of marriage from Matthew 19. And there are two brief comments that I'd like to make while you find the passage and before we dig in. So the first thing I want to say is that whether we are married or single, we all have a view of marriage. And so there's something in here for each and every one of us. And the second thing that I want to say is that there are likely very few of us that don't have some baggage when it comes to the conversation about marriage and divorce and singleness. Some of us have really painful things in those areas. And so I want to say that while this message doesn't present a full theological framework of all of these things, there's good things in here. And that God has always been and is today, as we've seen, in the business of restoring broken things. His mercies are new every single morning and he's making all things new. And so whatever situation we're in, this message is one of truth and one of hope, not of shame or condemnation. If you come out of here feeling bad, we got to talk about it. That's not where we're headed. Amen? All right. So um, because we're talking about marriage and being of one mind, my husband is going to help me by reading our passage for this morning. So here comes Brendan with Matthew 19, 1 to 12. You need a mic. Here, hold on. Okay. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it is not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciple said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, is it better not to marry? Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this, this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. 
Um, this is my son's fire truck. Can you hear me? I'm a little discombobulated. Okay. It's very cool. Um, it is a hot ticket item in our house. But I've got to tell you that my son's goal is to use this thing in every single way that it was never intended to be used. This thing has been through the oatmeal. Um, it nearly made it into the bathtub one day. I don't really know how we still have the ladder. Because um, it's, and this is a pretty cheap truck. It's hanging on pretty well. But he is bent on doing everything with this truck that he is not supposed to do with this truck. I have said sentences that include the words no in fire truck more times than I can imagine. So because of this and other toddler moments were merging into twos, I have been reading a lot of things about parenting (laughs) and parenting of toddlers. And I read a suggestion that I found really interesting that has been sort of effective in our home. Um, And (laughs) we're working on it. But this expert said, rather than telling your kids 30,000 things that they shouldn't do, like no, 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 tell them exactly what they should do. Like the one thing that you want them to do. And so we take the truck and we get on the floor and it's got these like, you know, you can make it go fast and the buttons are cool. And I've been showing Barrett how the truck is supposed to be fun. And slowly, the truck may be extending its lifetime um, because we're starting to use the truck the way it was made to be used. All right. So thank you for celebrating my parenting victory for me. (laughs) Glory in the highest. The truck will live. But let me connect the dots here, okay? So covenant relationships are more valuable than the coolest fire truck in the whole world. They're one of God's greatest gifts to us. Because love is the foundation for the work of God. It's the nexus point at which God moves on this earth. And so it's no wonder that since the very beginning of time, our enemy has worked really hard to cause us to use relationships in ways that God never intended. Humanity has been constantly and consistently tempted to play with our singleness, our marriage, in innumerable ways that God never intended. And when we play with those things, they break. So when Jesus is asked about the rules surrounding divorce, rather than mumbling off a list of a thousand things we should or shouldn't do, all the no's, Jesus points exactly to what God intended. So let's set the context a little more here. You might remember that Jesus is on a whirlwind teaching and healing tour. Um, A couple weeks ago, we heard a sermon about confrontation. Do you remember this? About how God uses confrontation to mend relationships and to build holiness into his body. And then we heard a sermon that followed it up on forgiveness. So God is showing us a lot of things about relationships. He's teaching. Crowds are growing. Tension is building. He's doing miracles. And from this place, Jesus goes to the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this isn't just a map exercise. This is actually a really interesting detail. Because where Jesus is in our text for this morning is in the territory of Herod Antipas. Do you remember Herod Antipas? Ray remembers Herod Antipas. 
All right, so let's think about this. Herod was married to a woman named Herodias, but Herodias was not his first wife. Herod and Herodias had both divorced other people to marry one another, and they were actually brother and sister-in-law before they did that. Now, John the Baptist had called them out for what they did. He told the world that this was a sin, and this lit Herod and Herodias on fire. They were very angry. So Herod had a party one day, and Herodias' daughter danced at that party, and she impressed Herod so much that Herod said, you could have any gift that you want. What do you want as a reward? And this little girl, Salome, I don't know how old she was, she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. He needed to die for the way he had called out her parents. And so you can see here, these Pharisees are not asking Jesus what he thinks about marriage and divorce because they want to learn. They're hoping that the way Jesus answers lands his head on the same platter as his cousins. Now, you've almost got to hand it to them for their cleverness. Like, there had to be a bunch of Pharisees that really thought through (laughs) this question. Because no matter how Jesus answers it, even if Herod and Herodias aren't mad at him, the crowd likely will be. See, at the time, marriage was held in extremely high regard in the Jewish community. I didn't know this. This is fascinating. But at that time, there were rabbis that taught that if a man was not married by the age of 30, he was a sinner. His crime, he had not fulfilled the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. So this isn't just the pressure of the family table and your aunt asking you when you're going to get married. This is like, if you don't get married... This is a sin. Now, because of this pressure for men to be in marriages, that pressure trickled down onto women to be really ideal wives. Men needed to be married. Those marriages needed to be pleasant places. And so if a woman dissatisfied her husband for any reason, things like her appearance, her personality, the way she cleans the house or cooks, her ability to provide sons, if there's anything flawed about her, the husband could just divorce her and try to find a better option. It was more important to keep that command to multiply than it was to not divorce. So this is why the Pharisee question was phrased exactly. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They were asking a loaded compound slam dunk of a question. Because in that little question is, Wait a minute, was Herod's divorce okay? Were the abundance of divorces probably represented in this crowd okay? And which rabbi is right? No matter how Jesus answers, someone is like deeply, even dangerously offended. It's interesting to me that there has always been contention around marriage. It's always been an area of offense in battle. But Jesus isn't intimidated. He's never intimidated. Jesus doesn't backpedal or try to cover all of his bases and, and give this profound picture, this broad thing. Jesus simply reminds the Pharisees and the crowd of a young, perfect couple named Adam and Eve. Now, this is weird if you think about it. Like, have you ever heard Adam and Eve as part of a sermon text for a wedding? It's not a logical answer, really, is it? Maybe it should be. I don't know. But he says, haven't you read 
that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. God's restorative work is all about restoring what was perfect before sin entered the world. So we are constantly on a journey headed back to a restored Eden. Does that make sense? It's a big point. So we can see God's vision for restored marriages in the beginning union of Adam and Eve. You've got one man and one woman, a shared purpose, a shared goal. They are one flesh and one soul without exception. There's not another human in sight, and there's not a single loophole. Not one. Now, for such an important topic, Genesis 2 is actually quite brief on its description of the relationship between Adam and Eve. Now, if you remember, God makes Eve from the rib of Adam while he's sleeping, and he wakes him up and he brings Adam his bride, and Adam says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now in Hebrew, the concept of being one flesh is not just about sexual union. It's about the entire human. Okay, So the ideal unity of marriage involves a unity of soul, as well as body. And as one commentator put it, it's unity of sympathy, what you care about. It's unity of interest, what you do, what you pursue. And it's unity of purpose. You're here for the same purpose. Just as with a physical body, you go with the picture here, if one part of your body is broken, the rest of your body knows that it's in pain. It feels it. If one spouse is in pain, the other feels it. If one muscle tears, how many of you experience this? The rest of your body kind of bends itself to figure out what to do with it, right? If my spouse is compromised, I bend, right? And if I'm compromised, I do my best to figure out healing so that together we are, we are set right again. A body shares the same purpose in every way. A leg cannot decide to walk to the right while the other goes to the left. In Proverbs it says that a house divided cannot stand. Marriages are to be places of wise discernment and submission to God. They're places of unified purpose and direction. And what this really boils down to is if something is important to one spouse, it's important to the other as well. And together we discern our direction. One part of the body keeps no secret from the rest. Adam and Eve were tempted by no other. They were naked and they felt no shame. They compared each other against no other. They walked together with God in the cool of the day and they drew their identity and purpose from being his. They were gods and they were holy unto one another. So that's a lot of words, but just think about this. Like, all of their needs as individuals were met in God the Father. 
and his presence with them. And from that place, they joined together in complete union. Eve was of indispensable value to Adam, just as he was to her. Because in marriage, one plus one equals one, and not two. And when one is added to one in such a way that they make one and not two, just as a body cannot be split into two living halves, married couples were just never meant to split. Therefore, says Jesus, what God joins together, let no one separate. Now you would think that the Pharisees would be as quiet as this room is now, at the end of what he says. But they're not done. (laughs) They still want to make someone mad today. And so a Pharisee pipes up, and they say, Jesus... Moses commanded men to give their wives a certificate of divorce. If God is so against divorce, then why would Moses command certificates of divorce? Now you can find what Moses has to say about divorce in Deuteronomy 24. It's long. I'm not going to read it. But the point that Jesus makes in response is that neither God nor Moses ever commanded a divorce. See, God in his infinite mercy and grace tolerated it among his people because of hard hearts. Divorce is only ever the fruit of sin and hardness of heart. And Jesus is now making a way to restore our hearts. And when he restores our hearts, he restores marriage. Now I'm guessing this is another one of those moments where the disciples are kind of like, Jesus. Man, they say, Jesus, if, if that's how this is supposed to go, if you really think that marriage is supposed to be that intense and permanent and to last forever, maybe we just shouldn't get married to begin with? Now, Jesus' words of reply, again, are brief but profound. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. You're right, Jesus seems to say. If a couple does not look at marriage the way God does, then they shouldn't do it. If God has not put it on their hearts to love one another wholly, sacrificially, unconditionally, as Christ loved the church forever and ever and ever and ever, then marriage is not for them. Now this flies in the face of that teaching about having to get married, right? To be fruitful and to multiply. This is rebellion against the common teaching of the day. And so you can feel the tension and the questions bubbling up. Jesus, if that's the case, what then? Is it bad to not get married? How are we supposed to pass on our family names and our heritages if we're not married and having children? Because that's the rub point here, right? Passing on the heritage. But Jesus is about to seriously shake things up. He says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept that. Now a eunuch in this case is a person who is either biologically altered to be single, or someone who has made a distinct decision to remain single and celibate. Now, we don't really use that word, but eunuch was a common thing and a common term in Jesus' day. And it may feel strange to us, but what Jesus is saying 
has deep, direct relevance for us. He says, There are those who are born without the capacity for sex and marriage. And there are those who were made by others without the capacity for sex or marriage. And there are those who choose to live without sex and marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. God made some to be married. The way that they love each other demonstrates the depth of God's love, and it bears witness to the gospel. God made some to be single. The way that they cultivate intimacy with God, the way that they have relationships with others, it demonstrates the brevity of God's love. It bears witness to the gospel. The way that we live as singles or as married is our single greatest witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has great kingdom intentions for both. Neither is to be elevated above the other as it historically has been. And in fact, Jesus says, if it's possible, Paul says this too, if it's possible for you to be single and celibate and set apart for the kingdom of God, do it. It is a good gift. If you want to hear more about the gift of singleness, Nancy preached us a message not long ago that you can find on our website. Just tremendous gift. This is God's holy, good, perfect view of marriage and of singleness. And whether we're married or single this morning, whether our marriages are really healthy or if they're significantly struggling, whether we deeply wrestle with where we're at or if we truly celebrate it, whether we're not currently sure which road we were designed for or whether we started off down a less than ideal road and aren't sure where to go now, God has restorative truth for each one of us this morning. The Bible poetically begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage of Christ and his church. We're in the middle of a wedding, friends. I mean, it's going to get bigger later, but it's happening. Everything went wrong after Adam and Eve, but in Christ, everything is being restored as Christ unites himself with us as his bride. Jesus wants to restore the mess that has been made, everything that has been broken in the area of marriage and singleness. And so, as we near the end here, I just want to make some space. I feel like this is one of those messages where God could have something unique to say to each and every single one of us. And so I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'm going to open us in prayer and leave us in space. And the question that I want to ask God to respond to for each of us is, God, how do you want to restore my view of covenant marriage and singleness? God, how do you want to restore my view of covenant marriage and singleness? And so church, let's pray. God, this is, um, this is a hard spot for so many of us, Lord. Singleness and marriage is so tied to who we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw near to each one of us wherever we need you. And God, I thank you that your plans and purposes are so good. 
and that your plans are better than any that we could ever have. And Lord, I thank you that you came to restore all that has been broken. And so, God, as we sit in your presence, would you show us how you want to work to restore today? <laughs>